Today's reading is Mark 8, 11 through 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And seven. For the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to them, him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're in this series called Live the Questions Now, and we're kind of exploring this idea that, that, that there's all kinds of questions that Jesus asked. And that maybe the way to live into them is to be asking them regularly. That, that maybe if we actually ask the questions and continue to ask the questions, by the time we look back later on in life, we'll actually have lived into some answers. And so we're doing this series called Live the Questions Now, and the the, the, the question we have this morning is, do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? You heard it read at the end of the story. Do you still not understand? And we're looking at Mark 8. If you want to open your Bibles, you're welcome, you're welcome to. It's, I don't know what page it's on. In the, there's some blue Bibles in the seat uh, under, underneath. I just want to tell you that we had a guest speaker yesterday, Mike Erie. He was really impressed that we had Bibles right underneath the seat. So, Ralph, I got credit for it, and I just took it. So... <laughs> He gave me credit. I was like, okay, sure. But I guess not every church has that cool feature. So, hey. So we're Mark 8 this morning. I love this story. I love this story about Jesus. And I was trying to figure out why I'm so drawn to it. As I was studying this week, I mean, why do I have this fond affection for this story? And I think largely it's because Jesus is real in this story. I mean, he just is honest in this story. We get to see him, he shows some honest-to-goodness frustration in this story. And as a guy who's probably known for getting frustrated, I'm like, amen, Jesus did it, so don't, don't get upset with me when I do it. I don't know if that works. But a lot of times we have this idea that Jesus is like some swami, right, who just floats six inches off the ground, and he's like this emotionless void. And here Jesus shows real emotion. And here's a question for you. When you see Jesus show emotion or the scriptures describe emotion, is that a sign of Jesus' divinity or of his humanity? Because we, 
we often like to dissect the two, and I'm not sure if that's a, even a good thing to do, but we often, oh, well, you know, emotions are such a human thing. And in fact, as I was writing this, I'm like, he's so human. I'm like, well, wait a minute. If you look at scripture and you look at the gospels and you look at the way it describes Jesus' emotions, Jesus had compassion or displays Jesus as jealous or as frustrated. Almost every time it echoes an emotion that God is described as having in the Old Testament. And that's freeing for me because my emotions are not part of some like broken part of my humanity. They're actually part of God and what God is like. And so we come to this and Jesus is just a real person who's fully human because God is in him. He is God. I just, I'm just drawn to that in this story. And I love the way that it mirrors the God of the Old Testament. And even this story actually draws on an important story in the Old Testament. The most defining story of the Israelites, it wasn't the creation narrative, it wasn't Abraham, it wasn't David, it wasn't Solomon building the temple, it wasn't Adam and Eve. The most defining story for the people of Israel. Anybody know it? I heard it. Come on. The Exodus. The most defining story, if you look throughout the Old Testament, there's constant references, and we've said it many times up here, it always harkens back to the Exodus. There's, there's all kinds of, of remembrance, remembrances and references throughout the prophets of the Exodus. God brought you out. God called you to himself. God made you his people through the Exodus. And you remember some of the key things that went on in the Exodus. Started off with a Passover. Started off with them baking bread that had no yeast, no leaven in it for this trip that they were going to go on. And they slaughtered a lamb. And they put the blood on their doorway. And those who had the blood, the Israelites, as the angel of death came by, it passed over their homes. And, and the firstborn of the Egyptians, they were all killed. And then as they're fleeing, as Pharaoh says, fine, go. And they're fleeing. And Pharaoh decides, wait a minute, I'm going to chase after them. I'm going to bring them back. And they come up to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through. And God drowns Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And then they get out in the desert. And what happens? They're hungry. They cry out to God, and what does God do for them? He gives them manna, this bread-like substance, and provides for their needs. If you read scripture, you'll see over and over again imagery, references, connections to the Exodus moment when God took Israel as his people. I love the way Mike Erie talked about that yesterday in connection with, with marriage. That the language that's connected to Exodus is one of drawing to himself, a groom who draw, draws to himself his bride. That's Israel's relationship to God. And it's defined by this moment, this story. So when Jesus comes in the Gospels, we shouldn't be surprised that the connections that he makes are with the Exodus. That the things he does and the way he talks are inviting Israel to live back into this story that's supposed to define them. And many of his deeds, many of his mighty acts, call us to remember the Exodus. And we've already talked about that in this series. Jesus is on the, on the boat with the, with the disciples and there's a storm. And he stands up and he rebukes the waves and, this, and, the, and he rebukes the wind and it listens to him. Who's the only person in scripture who's ever told the sea what to do? Yahweh. And in Israel, the sea always represents chaos. Who's the only person who can tame chaos? Yahweh. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and some fish. 
He feeds 5,000 people and there's enough for 12 baskets left over. Who provided bread for Israel? Yahweh. Those who encounter Jesus in person and those who encounter him through Mark's gospel should know Jesus is more than just a Messiah. He's Yahweh in the flesh and he's come to offer a new and a better exodus. Jesus is offering to the people a new and a better exodus. And in the story that we read, right before it, Jesus actually repeats the feeding miracle. So he, he's in this Gentile area, this non-Jewish area, and there's 4,000 people instead of five, and he takes seven loaves this time, and he feeds all 4,000, and the disciples pick up seven loaves, or seven baskets afterwards. And he gets into a boat, and he comes across a, a lake, and he lands on the side that's the Jewish side, and who's there to meet him? Our, our buddies that we love, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're there to welcome him back. So he's done all these things, all these mighty deeds, and the people around him should be making these connections. Who is this with us? This is more than a Messiah. This is Yahweh. They should be making that connection. And what do the religious leaders, those who represent God, come to do? They walk up to him and they demand a sign. Show us a sign. And, this, and, the, and the passage is very clear. It's to test him. Let me show you Psalm 95. I, I, hopefully you can read it. I'll read it to you. This is Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof that they had seen my work. He's talking about the Exodus here. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The word that's used to test there is the same word that's used here to talk about how the Israelites treated God. Now, obviously one's Greek, one's Hebrew, but there's the, same, there's the same connection. They're testing him in the same way that the Israelites tested Yahweh. God, we've seen your work, but we're going to test you again. And Jesus says, this generation will not receive a sign, just like that generation. There's a connection here. He's actually making reference to this. This generation is just like that generation. You want to test me just like your fathers tested me. No sign for you. That wasn't a Seinfeld reference. I heard some snickers. I thought, man, that's a... Dang, I'm trying to be serious. So they get in the boat. They leave. The disciples get in the boat. And they've got one loaf of bread. And Jesus walks up to them and he warns them. Beware. Beware the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees. And in the Passover, the, the yeast... And that leaven, the, the yeast and the leaven, to remove it is to make yourself pure. And so he says, beware the, the leaven that is in Herod and the Pharisees. Beware of that. That's in you. And they start arguing about not having enough bread. And he walks up to them and he says... Why are you arguing over the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Are your hearts hard? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And these are, 
These are references to those that, are out, that don't understand the secrets of the kingdom of God. Remember, he, he quoted this a while ago when the disciples asked him, why do you speak in parables? He says, because those who have ears to see and eyes to hear. Can't get that right. Those who have eyes to see and ears to hear will understand the secrets, but those who don't are outside the kingdom. He's asking them, are you, are you one of them? When I took the five loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people, how many baskets did you pick up? Twelve. And when I fed the 4,000 with, with, with seven loaves, how many baskets did you pick up? Seven. Do you still not understand? And whenever a gospel writer quotes a question that Jesus asks, it's pretty important, and especially when he ends a story with it. So this is the end of the story, end scene, and then we move on to something else. This is a pretty profound question. And the answer to the question, do you still not understand, is that they don't. They don't get it, and they're in danger because they don't get it. And the story in this boat, you know, you can sense Jesus' frustration that the people that are closest to him are at risk of ending up like the Pharisees and the Herodians whose hearts are hard and who are not going to enter into the life that Jesus is offering. Those that are following the Pharisees, those that are following Herod are not going to end up in the, in the life that Jesus is offering them. And, and, and the people that are closest to Jesus are at risk of the same fate. Like, I hear some desperation and some deep, deep, deep concern in Jesus' words. You're the ones following me. So if we're going to live the question now, like we've talked about, if we're going to wrestle with the questions, hoping that the asking will shape us into answers, then one of the questions we need to be asking is this. Is it possible to think we're following Jesus, but never enter the life he offers? Is it possible... To think we are following Jesus but never enter the life he offers. That's a tough question. That's a challenging question. It's a scary question. And it's one for us as well. It's easy not to see the tension in the moment because we know the rest of the story. But, but let's not forget that the disciples really don't get it until after the resurrection. Ultimately, ultimately the disciples' eyes are not open until after they see Jesus risen. And let's not forget that one of the men in this boat, one of the men who picked up the 12 baskets and the 7 baskets, is actually going to do what Jesus said when he betrays them to the, he betrays Jesus to the Pharisees and the Herodians and offers him up to be killed. For what? For 30 pieces of silver. One of the men in this boat will actually join the Pharisees and the Herodians to kill Jesus. The Israelites in the Exodus, the Pharisees, the Herodians, their hearts were hard. And now the disciples have been warned that they have the same potential fate. So how do our hearts grow hard in the way that Jesus is talking about, Jesus is warning about? Well, one way is, that when, we, is when we see God work in our lives, perhaps in great ways, but we fail to trust him. So we'll, we'll experience a moment when we see God work or, and we'll, we'll, we'll be in awe of that. Perhaps you've seen it in somebody else's life. Perhaps you've experienced it in your own life. And it doesn't have to be the parting of the Red Sea. It doesn't have to be the appearance of bread on the ground when you walk out the door. 
But you see God work in your own life. And you're in awe for a moment. And then you go about the rest of your life. And when another moment comes up where you have the opportunity to trust him, you act like nothing ever happened. You see God's power at work. And he's very present in, in a situation. And then we go about it unchanged. And I think scripture actually gives testimony over and over and over again that there's not a lot of remedy for people whose hearts will not be changed when they see God work. And there's an opportunity each time for us to trust God in greater and greater ways, but if we're reluctant to do that, our hearts are just going to grow hard. It was true of the Israelites during the Exodus. Exodus. They grumbled against God. They had seen mighty works. And when they were hungry, they complained. They actually told God, it was better for us when we were in slavery. Why did you bring us out here to die? It was true of the people of Jesus' day who saw him do extraordinary things and still came and questioned him, demanding a sign. And when he was betrayed, when he, at the very end of his life, abandoned him. And it can be true of us as well, but it doesn't have to be. We can see God work in mighty ways in our lives and the lives of those around us. And yet we could go about our lives as if they never happened. This week I found this, uh, this journal. I was studying, I was using a, a journal. I, had, I, I buy journals because I think, oh man, I'm going to be so intelligent if I write in a journal. And then I have this stack of journals that have like three pages used, right? So I grabbed one because I needed one, and I'm sitting down, and I open it up, and you can't really read it, and that's okay. It's kind of personal. But um, it's from February of 2010, and it's some prayers that I was writing for my family. So in February of 2010, we were pregnant with our first child, and we didn't know if she would be okay, but we knew that she had a cleft lip, um, a club foot, and that she had um, a major heart disorder, and we didn't know if, if she was going to survive. And, um, and there's prayers there that I look at, and I was reading them, I'm going, oh my gosh, God, you've answered every one of these in abundance. Every one of these in abundance. Um, there's prayers there for Lara, and he met every one of them. I mean, my wife was amazing through that time, and he really strengthened her. And everything that's true that I prayed for, God, God has provided and the irony for me is that our daughter's gone through eight, eight surgeries, some of them pretty minor, but a lot of them pretty intense. It wasn't until the eighth surgery that I actually tr- began to trust God. And I don't say that with a sense of shame, but there's a reality to it that I was like, every time we went into surgery, every time we went to the hospital, even though God continued to provide along the way, so she was born, she really good scenario she has surgery at two weeks comes out of it really well I mean all these things that God continued to provide but every time we went in including having a tooth removed which you would have thought my wife and I were going to fall apart over her going under some anesthesia for a tooth removal there was a deep deep fear that God didn't know what was going on in our lives and he wasn't going to be present and I remember Laura and I were talking about this. She had surgery about 15 months ago, and it was open-heart surgery, so it was probably the, the second biggest surgery she'd had compared to the first open-heart surgery, and we remember a profound difference that time. 
to where we were sitting in the lobby and we actually said, I really sense peace. And it wasn't like I sense, oh, everything's going to be fine. But we'd finally come to a place where we were like, okay, I think God knows who we are. Even though I, I say all the time, well, God knows you and loves you, I actually feel it this time. And I, we have a profound sense that God is involved in what's going on. That he knows Adele, that he loves Adele, and he's as much present in those five hours of surgery as anybody is. And we, we had a long conversation about it in the waiting room, but it was a profound difference for us. And I've been praying all week, like, I really want to share a story, and I, and I just opened up this, this notebook, and I'm like, man, that's the story for us. That's, that's where it became, because we struggled. We struggled so, so, so many times, day in, day out, week in, week out, month to month, to trust God, even though, I'm not looking for a guarantee of an outcome, but even though he'd met us and been present with us and brought people around us and done so many things and we could point and say God's been good, we had a hard time trusting him when that next thing came. And I was really thankful. I was really thankful to have experienced that peace and to say, God, you are here. Like I said, I can't guarantee the outcome. And I, I was careful. I want to be careful of the way I share that story that those of you who've had children or loved ones go through things and the outcome hasn't been all rosy and great. I'm, I'm not suggesting we just had the sense, oh, God's going to fix it. But we really had a sense that God was there, that he was present, and that because of his character, we could begin to trust him. It was a profound moment for us. Where have you seen God work in your life? That's not really a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer me out loud, but I would challenge you right now. Where have you seen God work in your life or the life of someone around you? And I bet most people in this room can point to something where they say, I have seen God work mightily here. And if you don't have a story that you can think of, if you don't have a time when when that's the case, let's talk. Because there's not only the issue of remembering, but there's also the issue of having eyes to see it. I think some of us refuse to look for those ways. I don't know about you, I grew up in a church where people would see Jesus in like, oh man, my mom gave me grape jelly. I love grape jelly. Praise you, Jesus. <laughs> and that becomes a turnoff. But it's so funny because I think so many of, of, of my friends and my peers, we've, we've gone the other way to say like, well, Jesus is in nothing. God's in nothing. We don't have eyes to give credit. If you hang out with Robin Smith, you'll see a guy that gives credit to Jesus all the time. God works in his life, and he gives praise to God. We need to become people that actually look for Jesus and give God glory. That's what he's looking for. People who will be conduits of his work and glorify him when he does. So we need to remember, we need to look But the other way that our hearts can grow hard is when we're seeking things other than Jesus. We need to re- remember when God works and we need to have eyes to see it. But the other, the other side of this, the other potential downfall is when we're, we're seeking things other than Jesus. Herod wanted power and self-satisfaction. Herod's famous for his, his lavish, disgusting lifestyle and all these 
all these things he would crave. He wanted to have power. He wanted to, to do whatever he wanted to do. The Pharisees wanted status and control. They wanted to decide who's in, who's out. They wanted to kick the Romans out. They wanted to secure this future. But even the disciples up to this point had their own agenda. You see it in the, in the next couple stories where Jesus tells them, I'm going to die, and Peter says, no, 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 you don't die. And he has to be rebuked by Jesus. Or James and John, when they come down the hill from seeing Jesus transfigured, they're asking, who, who gets to sit at your right hand? You know, we want places of power. Or the disciples are arguing, who's the greatest among you? And Jesus keeps saying, you don't get it, you don't get it, you don't get it. The disciples at this point are blind. There's a story, the story that follows right after this is one where Jesus heals a blind man in two stages. And I don't know if anyone's ever been confused by that story or thought, this may, why is this in here? But it's actually pretty simple. The disciples are blind. And they're going to get partial sight, but they're still blind and they're still at risk of not being fully healed. Because he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna reveal himself to them. And then he's going to say, and if you're following me, the trajectory is towards death. You're going to die to yourself. And they say, no. Peter says, no, 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 Lord, that's not the fate for you. The others are arguing about greatness and power and authority. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're still blind. You have partial sight, but you're still blind. And we can do that when we come into a relationship with Jesus. We can still want to follow him, but at our, with our own agenda. And that's a scary place to be. That's actually the place of idolatry. So the words that Jesus uses to rebuke the disciples, those are actually references to famous Old Testament passages. And he's basically saying these three things. You're stubborn, you're rebellious, and you're idolaters. This is to his disciples. Your failure, your failure to see me and my character is because you're following after other things besides me. Jesus is inviting his followers to follow after him. Not follow him just enough that they can also get what they, what they want. And that's a challenge for us. Do we want to know God so well that we can just follow him and seek after him and let go of the other things that have our hearts? I wrote this down and I debated about saying it, but I'm going to say it. Um, the American church, and I would even say, folks, to some extent, our church. I, want to say, I don't want to use the word crippled. That's too harsh. I'll say this. The American church is being crippled by the belief that we can follow Jesus just enough that he won't get in the way of our other things. And I think there's some truth to us as well. If we're really going to follow Jesus to where he wants to take us, we're going to have to let go of our other things. And that's hard. My wife and I don't live in a fancy house. We don't drive fancy cars. We don't go on fancy vacations. We used to eat at fancy restaurants, and then those two kids took that away from us, <laughs> which was a very important thing for me. And I could, I don't have, just because I don't have fancy, my heart lusts after things. Rick Watts has this great line about status, standing, and stuff. Man, I want all three of those. My heart lusts after them. And it's so funny because I could see ways in which Jesus is, is inviting me to, to, to let go of things, to follow him more, to, to be more generous. And I'm like, but, 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 but I don't get those other things. 
Hey guys, God, God is inviting us through the example of Jesus and through a relationship with Jesus to let go of those things and to follow him. The antidote to a hard heart is not to try to have a hard heart, but to move towards Jesus and the life he is offering us. Let me say that again. The the antidote to a hard heart is not to try not to have a hard heart, but to move towards Jesus and the life he is offering us. And following Jesus into this life he offers, it involves listening and responding to Jesus. Do we want to listen to Jesus? And say, God, give me ears to hear and eyes to see where you're working. And are we willing to respond when he calls us into things, even when they don't make sense? When he says, get in the boat, and you don't think you have enough bread, but get in the boat anyways. Can we walk in the boat and say, okay, Jesus, here's my bread. I know that you're going to make this work, because you've called me into the boat. Make it what you will. I'm going to trust you because of your character, because of how you've demonstrated to be. I can get in this boat with you. In the spirit of question asking, we've been doing this question asking, I have three diagnostic questions for us this morning that I want to ask, and I'm going to move through them quickly. I want to ask, and and they're questions that are meant to be, I guess, diagnostic questions. Am I moving into this life that Jesus offers? So obviously they're not exhaustive, but there are three that came out of this text, and I want to throw them out to you because I think, that, I think they're pretty good. Um, so the questions that we can be asking ourselves regularly, and they're, they're, they're questions that help us ask, am I moving towards Jesus? So the first one is obviously, can I take risks? Can I take risks? See, a lot of times, I don't think, I don't think we have a problem when we get in the boat. And we say, Jesus, how are you going to make this work? I think a lot of us are so aware of every area of our life that we see shortage and we see not enough. We see insufficiency so we don't even get in the boat. That's the challenge of our culture today. We won't get in the boat because we can't guarantee the outcome. And the life that follows Jesus, the life that's moving towards Jesus is one that can take risks and say, A, I sense Jesus, this is your call. So I'm not just jumping any boat, but this is the boat you have me jump into. It's with you. I can take risks because I believe you're in this. I can take risks because I believe you're calling me into this, and I know your character. You can easily make bread work for 13 people with one loaf. It's simple math in Jesus' kingdom. He can make anything. There's always enough in his kingdom. There's always enough. And he's given us plenty of reasons to trust him. And here's the thing. He's not just A or B. God is the God of all kinds of possibilities. I get in so many situations. I'm like, it's either going to happen this way or this way. And when God works, it's almost always some way I didn't expect. And we're going to talk about money. I have been amazed in the way in the last few years in my wife and mine's life that money shows up. I didn't even expect that. I didn't plan on that. Well, that, that took care of this problem. That took care of that problem there are so many opportunities in God's kingdom and so many times I get into it's either this or this and there's no other possibility and I don't see how God's going to make that work. Yet God is always the God of a greater possibility that we can't see. In every one of these stories, the disciples come to him. We don't have enough bread. There's a storm. Don't you care? Did any time did they expect he's going to say, well, give me five loaves and I'll feed everybody or I'm going to tell the story. I'll tell the storm what to do. Oh yeah, that makes sense always the possibility of 
far greater than we could ever imagine in his kingdom. Jesus isn't asking us to pretend there is a ton. He's not asking us to pretend we have 13 loaves of bread. He's inviting us to trust him that he can make more appear out of nowhere. Second question. Do I live with open hands? I mean, this is, this is closely related. Do I live with open hands? So here's a question for you. Do those around me describe me as generous? You can describe yourself as generous, but that doesn't count. It doesn't. Anybody can describe themselves as generous. And don't get me wrong, you can do things that, that help you practice generosity and help you grow in generosity, but the true test is, do other people describe you as generous? And do those people close to you describe you as generous? And there's two aspects to this I want to throw out. Or three. Do I give free of charge? Meaning when I give, do I just give it away? Not expecting it to come back to me. Do I have joy in giving so that when I give, I'm actually pleased in that and that I'm not filled with regret? Oh, man. I can't believe oh, I wish I had that back. Oh. Do I have joy that what God has given to me has gone? I gave it, I gave it away. There's lots of great stories in this community of people who've given to others with joy. We need to celebrate those more. And we need to become, and I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about forgiveness. Do I have enough emotional capacity to forgive? Hospitality, do I have enough space to receive others in? Patience, do I have enough time to, to wait on somebody else? Those are all things that are scarce in our society. And those are all things that God can provide. Do I let go of control? When I worked at the rescue mission with Jim Lewis, we'd have all kinds of donors come in and they'd want to give us a gift, but then there was all kinds of strings attached to it. Well, I want to give you this financial gift, but it has to go here, here, and here, and here, here, and here. And I want to be, and you're like, oh my gosh, this isn't a gift. It's a burden. And you need it. And so you ask, and you kind of jump through the hoops, but there's some times when you have to say, no, thanks. You're not, this isn't a gift. This is just control. Can we let go of control? Generosity is rooted in knowing God for who he is. Not knowing about God, but knowing him personally and trusting that when we get in the boat with him, there's plenty. So here's another question for you. Do you have enough? Do you have enough? How many times do we sit there in our lives and ask, do I have enough? Lastly, is it becoming less about me? If following Jesus is to follow him to the cross, then it, be, then it becomes less about us. It has to become less about us. It has to be a dying to ourselves. It was great yesterday in the way that a lot of the, the marriage discussions are happening. A lot of things that were talked about. A lot about dying to ourselves. I really appreciated Mike's approach to that. A lot about dying to ourselves. And so many of the conflicts, so many of the things that we see in life are because we can't die to ourselves. But if we want to enter into life that Jesus is offering, then we have to realize that that's, that's what's involved. And trust that at the end of that, there's joy, there's life. Jesus came that they might have life and have it. Jesus didn't come and say, you're going to be miserable. It's going to be horrible. But come on, sign up. He said, I'm offering you life, but you're going to have to die to yourself. Do, you, do we want to do that? I've thrown a lot of questions out this morning, and I realize that. Um, 
So just, I don't know. I don't want to apologize for that, but there's a lot to chew on. So I want to move into a time of reflection, one that we've had uh, every, every week for the last several weeks as we've been in this series, time to think. And here's the two questions that we're focusing on. What do I hear God saying to me? And what does God want me to do about it? So we're going to have a few minutes of silence. If this is your first time with us, don't, don't freak out. But we're going to have some time of silence, a few minutes. And this is a gift because we so rarely get it in our culture, in our society, a time where you're able just to sit still and be quiet and reflect. So I invite you to, to be using those questions. And maybe there's another question that was prompted today. But I invite you to use that time for you to listen for God's voice in your life.